Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who have been successful because they found that point in their lives to give themselves permission to just go for it. The genesis of this podcast is based on the inspirational lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and their world-changing impact, dreamers and doers. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place advisors can come to to grow their minds and businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. And our guest today is Brandon Hernandez, who's the co-founder of Whole Brain Consulting. Brandon has decades of experience in the supply chain services industry covering food safety, quality, and regulatory compliance. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning. I hear a bird in the background. Is that a bird that you have in a cage or is it just a squeak? That's uh, that's just a squeak from the outside. I, I have uh, the uh, fortune of having a robin that or a uh, blue jay that's decided to move into my backyard, and so uh, that's probably what you're hearing is him fluttering around in the background. Well, welcome to the podcast, blue jay. <laughs> so, food safety and quality is something all of us want, but many of us don't think or want to think of it a lot. So, how did you get started on this path to what's become a career? So it's kind of interesting. Um, I was uh, studying biology at Colorado State University. Go Rams! Shameless plug. And and I really I was in the pre med program. And what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be a, a pediatric oncologist. But over the tenure of being in pre med and doctors, I shadowed didn't really seem like it was practicing medicine anymore. And so. I had to try and figure out something to do. The, my senior year of college, my, my now wife got uh, pregnant with our first child and was like, well, I got to do something. I can't, I can't sit here and sort of meander through life. And so my stepmother worked at a bean manufacturing plant that actually produced uh, Taco Bell beans in the na- one of the neighboring towns, the town I grew up in, Greeley. And they said, well, we have an opening in the office upstairs. And I said, well, I'll take it. I need to do something. So while I finished up school, I I worked in the office and it really was great because I had the opportunity to get some light APAR and how a food ingredient manufacturer worked. And then the supply chain aspect and, you know, scheduling with farmers and, you know, harvesting schedules and just gave me a real holistic view the first year that I worked there, which I'm grateful for in the, in food manufacturing in general. And then there just happened to be an opening in the QA lab downstairs. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be a microbiologist and I'm not going to be an entomologist like some of my professors wanted me to be. And so uh, I took the position down in the QA lab and it was enough micro swabbing and um, chemistry and things that we were doing in the lab that um, it really felt like I was utilizing my degree. And it was just kind of it was kind of a rocket ship ride from there. Really, that's how I got started was pure luck. It wasn't anything that I, I set out with in, with intention. It's just one of those things. And I'm sure as we get deeper into this conversation, I will thread a theme of luck throughout my entire <laughs> professional career that I think is important. But um, certainly me getting into QA was pure happenstance. Yeah, and in researching this podcast, there's something called the scientifics of the supply chain. So you're interested in that, and why and what is it? 
Well, so the scientifics in the is really, you know, there are laws written by USDA, FDA, you know, regulatory bodies, states uh, that all are applicable and and orbit science in general. How does biology, chemistry, and physics? How can we use those three things to make the food supply chain safer? And so that's really where the scientifics of the supply chain come in is that really from from farm to table there is a lot of science that goes into how your tortilla chip is made or how your uh, bagged salad is made and how it makes it to your table without causing undue illness and things like that there there is a your can of soup it looks real simplistic because I can can my jams and jellies at the end of a season at home. But really on a, on a macro scale, there is a lot of science that goes into ensuring that the can of soup you pull off the shelf is safe for you to consume. Even if you decided to open it and consume it cold, there's interventions that come into play that ultimately ensure that you're not, we're doing everything possible in the food supply chain on a large scale to keep you safe. So besides fear, were there other reasons the supply chain was devastated during the pandemic or am I just thinking of delivery and if so, has it completely recovered? So from the perspective of what was raw, I'll say quote unquote wrong with the supply chain is it wasn't the supply chain itself. It was that the demand skewed so hard. What we saw was not what you saw and what fleshed out on a store shelf, even to toilet paper, was not the fact that toilet paper wasn't around or that it wasn't in a warehouse somewhere. It was simply that last that last 10 yards of there just weren't enough trucks to carry it to to the um, to carry it to the grocery store. And what happened was it skewed the demand so hard across all categories in the grocery store that grocery store chains in general had to start saying the, we have to allocate the trucks. And by that, I mean, is we can only fit one pallet of toilet paper because we have to fit two pallets of soup and two pallets of beans. And they began the allocation, but eventually the demand outstripped the amount of trucks. And one of the things we saw, I believe it was us food service who was big in restaurants converted 300 trucks into the supply chain to try and help alleviate the demand. And so it was never that the food couldn't get made. It's not that the product couldn't get made. It was that inability to put it on a truck and get it to your store shelf is what really drove empty store shelves. Amazing. You were recently in Reader's Digest covering the 10 popular foods you can't buy anymore because of the pandemic. Which one surprised you the most? I would say I, I think the bigger surprise to to us in general, because it's such a driver in our industry, is that the the small branded skew rationalization that has to occur. Again, uh, the one that su- that surprises me is having an issue would be that just in general, in generally speaking, is that the small brands, which are really the life's blood to CPG. Uh, and to the industry that we occupy, that and the just the immediate flip to you go from five or six percent direct to consumer and it balloons to sixty on you overnight. But I think those are 
those are some of the surprises. But again, uh, that article I did with Reader's Digest, I, it's, I don't think it's that you'll never see them again. It's just that it's going to be one of those things where it's going to ebb and flow on us for a little while. And they're going to be unfortunate victims of COVID that you don't, you're just not going to get to see any more of. Um, and so that's probably the more, to me, the more disheartening thing is that because I want a lot of people to be successful, the more disheartening thing is just brands that are going to go away in general because they can't survive it. And that's, that's the, that's the true bummer. And again, that goes back to the demand part about allocation and things like that is that if you're a small brand, you just can't get on the truck. That's, that's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. Let's look to the future. With about 2 billion more people expected by 2050, a lot more mouths to feed, what's the future of food? Does the whole industry need to make a major shift? Well, I think what you're seeing is that food is really the first place that you really started to see globalization. Supply chains that are differentiating on uh, you know, I don't. I no longer look to single source. Uh, let me pick on something. Uh, quinoa, right? Quinoa or some of those ancient grains. It used to be the first phone call you made was to South America. It was the Andean Andean quinoa or Bolivian. That was the first phone call you made when anybody ever wanted quinoa. And realistically, that is now differentiated to. China and New Zealand and India. And so there, so I think as we grow, as, as the population grows, you'll see more impetus for diversified supply chains, but you'll also see sustainable farming, regenerative agriculture. Those are all things that will begin to play heavily uh, in the supply chain. It's starting now. It, it is only going to get bigger, the more populous we get. And so I would say the biggest thing you're going to see is globalization and diversification, which is not something that traditionally people had concerned themselves with. I do a deal with a farmer. I I shake that farmer's hand in North Dakota that they're going to provide me X amount of beans. That's great. And those those relationships will maintain themselves. But as the growing demand reaches its zenith for – population and the need to feed more, those relationships will begin to diversify even further. And they should. Are plants going to be the future of meat consumption? I think they will play a pivotal role in it. Uh, I think that there is a huge push. You see what Beyond is doing. You're seeing what brands like Alpha, Alpha Foods are doing. I really think that it's going, I don't think animal proteins go away completely but I certainly do see plant-based proteins playing a, a more major critical role uh, as as the uh, as they continue to make their push into different markets and categories of the supply chain for sure. And I see we're we're engineering food to be more nutritious. Is this a want to, a have to, or the nat- natural evolution of food? I think it's a bit of all three, but certainly I think. Again, it's back to the, the consideration for population growth. I think the density, the caloric density or the nutritional density of a food that can be manufactured will become critical because, again, if I can provide somebody a all – I don't want to say an all-in-one meal because it's like I'm saying it's like Soylent Green. That's not what I'm trying <laughs> to say. But certainly 
if you're if you can feed somebody with say a protein bar right with one bar in a meal and have it be just as nutritious as if they had consumed proteins and a salad and all that i think that's where again the population density begins to drive those factors because it's one thing for me to feed you food it's one thing but it's another thing for me to feed you nutritious food right mm -hmm. i I maybe can subsist off of Snickers bars forever. Do I want to? Probably not. But if I can flip that for something else that's, again, more nutritious for you, uh, I think that's where you're going to see the push for technology to really make, it, make more inroads into the food supply chain in general. How do you work with advisors and private equity firms to help them assess this industry? Your, your site says, make sure you're buying the boat, not the anchor. We love that. Right. Tell us more. So what we look at and what we're generally speaking, what we're brought in for, what we advise on is really if you're going to put money into this brand, first of all, it's working with the private equity firms in because there's becoming more conscious private equity that's getting into the, into the industry. And so you want to work with them to say, what are your main drivers for your investment? Then what we do is we go in and from an operational standpoint, we just do a top-down evaluation and say, okay, how sustainable is this business at this level? And certainly as you look to scale it, are they going to be able to scale? Because realistically, I don't hand somebody a $10 million check to have you kind of meander I hand you a $10 million check because that's the shot in the arm you need to go next level. And so that's ultimately what we look at is if you hand them this money, can they, can they make that leap with you and what help would they need along the way? It's, uh, I always say there's a difference and this is where the, the boat or the anchor can go either way is that there's a difference between smart money and dumb money. Dumb money is a person that just wants to hand you a check and then they turn your back, they turn their back on you without any sort of high level advisement or anything smart money is I give you the check and then I give you resources to make it happen. And so that's really where we sit in and we say, okay, look, this is a great bet. It's in a good category there. It's a hot category. You do want to put it in, but here's the things that you want to do. You want to help them on a QA. You want to help them in their QA. You want to help them in their supply chain. You want to help. These are the places you want to go plug holes so that as you take them on that rocket ship ride, you're, we're sure that they're going to be able to be carried forward with you. So let's get into your path. Did you experience barriers in your career working in such a niche industry? And you said there was a lot of luck. So, I mean, my personal path, what ultimately carried me to, through to consulting, the lucky part, I would say that is that has thread its way through when I was working in the manufacturing industry was I got placed with a lot of people that I had the opportunity to learn from, whether it was good or it was bad. The luck was I got to see what the good and bad were. And so to be able to take that and assimilate it and to use that to my advantage, that's lucky. And so Again, I've been, I've been given the opportunity. Uh, one of my last industry jobs, which was with uh, Alex at Claremont Foods in, in Boulder, he hired me and I was employee number three. And not only was I employee number three, he said when I went there, when I started, 
it was a blank canvas. And he simply said, him and his family simply said, build me the best, build me the best facility that you possibly can. And so that's what me and, uh, at the time, the director of ops, Dustin, that's what, that's what we did. And I had the opportunity to build a, a, a best in class facility. And that fleshed itself out in that, uh, I believe it was the second audit I ever had there. I scored 105% because they gave, because they recognized our allergen control, our allergen and sanitation control program as best in class. So I've been fortunate enough that I've had people that have supported me, that have taught me, that have worked with me to really make me better. Now, the other piece to that, and I think what others that try and get into do it, doing what I do or what we do, or even whether it's even if it's just managing at, at a single manufacturing site is you will always learn more from your failures than your successes. And don't take the failure as a reason to quit. Take it as a major reason to learn. And that's ultimately where I think I was able to convert some of those failures and turn them into strengths. And ultimately, that's flushed itself out into my being able to pivot into a consulting career. Yeah, rolling with that theme of failure, being the Permission to Succeed podcast, can you describe a time when you hit that plateau status, felt stuck, kind of needed to look yourself in the mirror and say that, you know, this is on me. And, you know, how did you deal with that time? So I think I thought long and hard about this question because I, so realistically the plateau piece of it was literally the day I decided to start. And realistically the day I decided to go out on my own, I had been subcontracting with another company. I wasn't sure what was going on. It was a bad business deal, and I am sitting across the dining room table from my wife, and I have $250 to my name. I have invoices out that I don't know if they're going to be fulfilled or not, if they're even going to be paid, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. My wife, I have two kids at home. I have $250 to my name. I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, And I took a night to sleep on it, and I finally said, it's time to go big air. I'm either going to, I'm either going to do this or I'm not. I decided to make the move into consulting. I'm going to make it work by hook or by crook because I have, I have dedicated myself to this and I really truly believe that I can help a lot more people if I do it this way. And so what happened was I borrowed a couple bucks from my father. Uh, one of the big events of the year was going to be later that week. Uh, actually the following week, which in March, which was Expo West and I said, this is what I'm going to do. I borrowed a couple bucks from my dad. I got a flight to Expo West. There was a 5 a.m. flight, and then there was a midnight flight back. I had no money to stay anywhere. I barely had any money to get to the show. But the week before, I had built myself a website. I had ordered business cards, 50 of them, because that's all I could afford. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to do this. And I got on the, I got on the plane flew out, begged my way into the show uh, through a friend. I tossed all 50 cards I had, and I went back home. At I, I was up for probably 24 straight hours, and I said, I'm going to do this. I, I have to see if the world's going to tell me whether I'm going to be – they're going to give me permission to do this or not. And sure enough, I sweated it out. It was the Thursday I went, which is the first day of the show. It's a big day back then. And by Monday, I had five new clients. 
And so it was one of those things where you can be, you can get down in the mouth. You can, you can look at it as a failure or you can use it to fuel you. And that's ultimately what I decided to do. I can sit here and feel sorry for myself or I can, or I can make it happen. And I, again, I don't think I made it happen because of my sheer will. Again, the thread of luck is I have had a tremendous amount of people that have backed me for a long time. And I give uh, just a couple of shout outs to Scott Jensen at Rhythm Superfoods. Been a great guy from the day I decided to go out. He has been a supporter and has been as extremely helpful to me. And I am I'm internally grateful to him. Uh, John Maggio, who has been a uh, a sounding board for a lot of different things. Great guy. And then Eric and Darren at Oogie's, Oogie Snacks once Oogie's Popcorn. They have been cheerleaders of mine. I don't know why. All I know is that I'm incredibly grateful because they're the ones that ultimately helped kind of start me and push me in that direction. And they've helped sustain me that way. And I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank them for that. That's great. Has the pandemic impacted your business and what'd you learn from it? If so. So we had a small dip, probably the first month of the lockdown, which was for a couple of weeks, but realistically, once the demand in the supply chain really started to, to, to massage its way out, we've really kind of gone back to business as usual. Um, the one part that really hurt was not being able to send our QA people out into the world. Um, but realistically, you know, my business partner, Will, and I had a conversation. This was the week before any lockdowns really started that we called, uh, we emailed all of our QA consultants that were potentially going to be on the road. And we said, get out, go home. We will deal with the aftermath. We will deal with whatever happens, but you guys need to be home with your families. And did it, did that, does that hurt? Yeah, it does. Cause having QA people out on the road and advising and things like that are, are again, a, a good portion of what we do. And so, but at the same time, it's like my duty and responsibility to you all is more important than having you on the road. We will get back to, we will get back to normal when, when the world will allow it, but I can't in good conscience send you out into the world and then hope for the best. That's just not, that's not who I am. That's not why I started BJH food safety, which converted into whole brain. That's not why I did any of that. And so that's probably been the part that's hurt the worst, but we're, you know, we're getting, we're getting through and we're, we're going to be fine. And again, the luck part and being eternally grateful for the people that you get to be around from the people at naturally Boulder to the people at Informa to people like yourself. I mean, I permission to succeed. I, there are still days that I pinch myself that I don't really know that I am successful, but I'm here and I'm grateful to be here and I will forever be grateful to be here. You have a partner, Dr. William Madden. Give us some insight to how you make that work. Partnerships are tough. They don't often work, but yours is seeming to, to do just that. I think from the perspective, it's kind of like, again, the, the luck piece of it, again, plays into this. But it was sort of at the beginning, it was sort of the world pushing us together, which was I had met him. So like Oogie's Popcorn, who I brought up earlier, they were his first client. They ended up being my first client. And so 
but we hadn't really, we hadn't really talked to each other, interacted much. And it was just sort of one of those things where he had heard from a number of people that he was having QA issues and supply chain issues because that his company at the time, right brain was, was, uh, was doing co-man sourcing and things like that, but he was getting questions in those arenas and everybody was pointing them to me. And so ultimately we started to do business together. And then the way that we make it work, I think is that we had both had failed business dealings with other partners and that didn't ultimately work out. But then we, I think part of it was the fear of not having it work out again. But the other part is that, we're a very good uh, yin and yang to each other from the perspective that he might get spun up about something, but I look at it a different way. And so I can calm him down and we, we kind of reach it and it's the same way. And so from that perspective, that's how the dynamic has worked. We, we both really didn't want a business partner at all. Um, we both readily admitted to that to each other numerous times before we finally signed the agreement to, to become whole brain. And, and it's just, it's, it's worked out. We, we just, there's a, a balancing act that you play and it's, it's worked to our advantage to this point. Give me your top tip to growing a sustainable, thriving business. My top tip to growing a business. Whew, that's a big one. I would say that you can't so there's this quote, there's a couple of quotes that I always kick around in my head that I always think are important. One of them is that playing it safe isn't going to get you anything in this world. And so if you're looking for safe, getting into doing what we're doing is not what I would suggest for anybody. But the other thing is, and I, I said it earlier, which was learn to take your failures and make them strengths. I think that's the biggest is that you, you, uh, you fail at something. And if you dwell on it too long, that's what consumes you. And you forget what your purpose was before. Not everybody's going to love you. Not everybody is going, not everything you're going to touch is going to turn to gold and you have to be okay with pushing past it. And ultimately that's, that would be my greatest advice to even myself when I was younger was don't worry about the people that the failures or the people that aren't for you push past it. If this is really what you're passionate about, what you want to do, what you feel like your ultimate gift to the world is, then you have to learn to block those people out because, or those failures out and convert them into strengths and learn from them, but don't dwell on them. That's great. Where can people find you at Holbring? So we have a contact page. Uh, obviously, you can just email me, Brandon, at whole-brain-consulting.com. I try and make myself as readily available for uh, as much you know, advisement or anything like that as well as – and again, that's for uh, the volunteer aspect of going in and trying to help kids with a dream understand sort of what the CPG landscape is. But also, if they're looking for to engage us for any reason, that's, that's the place to get me. Wonderful. Brandon, it's been quite a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. For everybody at Iris Media Works, our producer, Jakey Beard, and the Permission to Succeed team, this is Doug Heikinen. Take care.